Sip on the go with a Starbucks iced shaken espresso. Our signature roast, shaken with ice, then finished with a splash of milk. Customize it to match your style on the Starbucks app. Make today a good day. And now another no-brainer money-saving tip from Progressive. Marcus, what happened? I was changing my oil and I spilled some on the floor. Oh, we'll use these $50 bills to wipe it up. Perfect. Got any more? Yeah, yeah, take a couple hundred. Stop. Instead of using money, use an old rag. And here's a better tip from Progressive on how not to waste money. Don't pay too much for car insurance. Drivers who switch and save could save hundreds. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Potential savings will vary. Thank you for listening to Performance Anxiety on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mark. And before we get started, I want to thank our sponsor, AKG, for sending us their Podcaster Essentials Kit. The Lira mic and the headphones are wonderful. And if you've ever thought about doing your own podcast, they're a high-quality, economical way to do it. Back in mid-July, I had the distinct pleasure of speaking with Scott Von Riper. Scott's love of music stems from his dad's passion for big band and the family organ lessons he had as a child. He began playing in a band with his brother at age 11 doing covers. Soon after that, he started playing bass, his first one being made from some wood he found under his house, clothesline wire, and some nails. Once he got a proper bass, he began playing out doing the biker bar circuit where fights would break out on the dance floor. After playing with bands Scarlet and the Morning After Girls, Scott formed the Black Rider with Amy Nash. They were immediately asked to open shows for bands like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club and the Jesus and Mary Chain, which Scott would later join as a touring guitarist. He's releasing his first solo album with a mix of songs that have been around for years and new music. Scott shares so many great stories in this episode, so give him a follow at Von Riper on Twitter and on Instagram. And pick up his solo debut album, Dream State Treasure, wherever and however you get new music. Follow us at Performance ANX on the socials, Send us some coffee at ko-fi.com slash performanceanxiety. Merch is found at performanceanx.threadless.com. Now let's welcome Scott Von Riper to the Performance Anxiety family, part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, this is uh, Scott Von Riper, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety Podcast. And stay tuned while I have a great chat with Mark about Mary Chain, The Black Rider, and my upcoming uh, solo album, Dream State Treasure. I hadn't listened to the podcast before, so uh, I've been doing a lot of moving the last couple of days, so I've just kind of had a couple going. A bunch of my friends have been on your podcast. Uh, yeah, I, I realized that a little while ago, so I was really happy when uh, you said you'd, you'd be happy to come on. I do appreciate you coming on. This is awesome. I've, I've been a big fan of Black Rider for a long time, and... Uh, I didn't realize until I had uh, Laura Carbona on that you mixed her live album. I did indeed, yeah. I would say that's the best live album I've heard in a long time. I actually listened to uh, to that podcast yesterday. As oh. I said, I was, I was moving and I was listening to a couple of episodes. So um, I, I listened to Laura's and Andre's and Lucy's 
Um, the L1011 guys, I also know. Oh, awesome. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, your podcast was uh, the soundtrack to my moving yes. yesterday. So <laughs> oh, listening, listening to a bunch of my friends talk to you. Well, at least you didn't listen to one of my, oh, I'm canceling. This, is, this isn't worth it. Yeah, yeah. No, nobody gave me a call and said, don't do this yeah. podcast. <laughs> and I've also had uh, Leah and Peter from Black Rebel Motorcycle Club on. Yes, of course. I, I listened to that as well. I've known those guys for, God, a long time. So what I like to do is to find out where you're at right now, to find, sure. figure out where you came from, figure out how you got into this whole music industry. And I like to obviously start at the beginning. So I know you are, you were born in Australia. Mm -hmm. When did music become a, a big passion for you? And, and what were you listening to that really kind of turned that switch for you to make you think this is amazing? Well, I don't recall. I think I did not grow up in a musical family at all, but at some point one of my parents decided to buy an organ and put it in the house and that everybody in the family should to take lessons. An organ? Yeah. Well, not and even like a piano, just an organ. No, it was, it was an organ. And everybody, uh, everybody had weekly lessons. And, um, and I think I was probably about seven or eight at this time. And uh, within a matter of weeks, I think both my parents dropped out, and then a couple of months, I think my brother dropped out, and then and then I was the one that only uh, I was the one that stayed with it, and that was probably my own like the only instrument that I've ever had kind of formal lessons on and and oh. kind of and training and stuck with that for a while. So you voluntarily um, stuck with it. I voluntarily stuck with it. Wow. And while it seemed incredibly uncool to me at the time, I have come to appreciate just how much I learned during that period, which came in handy later. The, the idea of, so when, you know, when playing an organ like that, you've got your, you've got your foot working the bass. Um, okay. and so the next instrument for me, after I progressed from the organ onto synthesizers and pianos and stuff was I, I started to play bass in a band. So oh. I already had like, I already had like a heads up on that. Later on, my brother picked up uh, the drums and so we had a drum kit in the garage, which oh. was another, uh, another kind of great thing for me because then I'd be able to go down and kind of at least get my head around how to play the drums and, you know, put some headphones on and listen to music and, and bash around and, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I guess super early on, I was really, it's funny, I had this, uh, my parents did not really have a lot of music playing in the house. I think that the one thing that my father did give me that I do love is that his love of big band music you know, like Glenn Miller and stuff like that. Oh, wow, really? Which I, I really adore to this day. Uh, and just trying to think what else. Really not much, I've got to say. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't a musical family. That's kind of um, interesting, the, the big band influence, because I don't, it's not obvious in the music. Not at all, but I think it really struck up, uh, while I do have a real love for that period of music, I also have a love for the I guess the the big band part of it and understanding who's playing what and where oh. and how it how it influences kind of the overall production of the song. Because the production, the um, orchestration, maybe where where it. Yeah, the or the orchestration. Yes, yeah, is, is the right word. So yeah, the, I think that was the, the one of the few things that I picked up from him. And then 
he was also playing, you know, stuff like Bill Haley and the Comets and oh, yeah. um, bits and pieces of rock and roll. But there was not a lot of music being played in the house. Oh, so, man. Which is weird. You know, I didn't come from a yeah. musical family. Yeah. So what was it that really got you into uh, playing music out in front of people with, with uh, bands and stuff? So after playing, you know, I've been playing the, the organ, learning that at home. Um, I was in high school and a friend of mine i think i'd bought a guitar as well and a friend of mine who lived on the street who was he had an older brother as well like i did who was super into like pink floyd and led zeppelin and all this kind of stuff and i i, I spent a lot of time at his house <laughs> um, and, that, and that's where i got all of that that's where i developed my love for a kind of um you know going out and you know going to teenage parties and coming home and putting on Pink Floyd, yeah. Um, while while the room is spinning, yeah. you know? and um, so you know, to this day, I, I still am a huge Pink Floyd fan. So I picked up guitar, and my brother was playing drums, and he's a year and a half older than me, so he was in the grade above, and he was in a band, and I think the band was called Surrealism, and there was there was a bunch of older guys, okay. so in, in the year above and the year above that actually playing some really cool stuff. Like they were doing a joy division cover and, wow. you know, like it was stuff a little bit above my head at the time. Yeah. Um, and I think I was 11. Um, oh, so I, I joined my first band thanks to my brother who was when I was 11, I started playing synth in this band, uh, and he was playing drums. And then there was another two siblings, two brothers in that band. Yeah, and that's, so that was my first band. I was 11. Were you uh, going out and playing out in, in venues or, or well, having, to, having to sneak no, in? Well, not at, not at that age. We were a school <laughs> band. So, I mean, we played it. I, I recall us playing at a couple of school events and one one party, I think. Okay. Um, I don't remember us playing that much. I remember a lot of time being spent in the garage. When did you start singing? The singing thing came... After that band, it was kind of like an offshoot of that band. So one of those brothers and then myself and some other people started forming another band. Again, I was in my kind of mid-teens, I think. And that's when I became the bass player and lead singer of the band. And so this must have been, I would say, around the mid to late teens. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that's when I started singing. Basically, you could have played any instrument in the band. Well, <laughs> I, I was I definitely had my I was a beginner bass player, and I remember to learn the bass. I didn't even have a bass at this time, <laughs> so I, I had found a piece of wood that was underneath the house and and gotten some clothesline wire oh and and nailed four of these wires to the piece of wood and, and drew on the fretboard as I knew it and practiced on that oh until until I actually I don't know if it was, until I could afford a bass or until I got a bass. I can't really remember what happened, but I don't know why I was why I was doing that. But I do remember doing it. That's amazing. Um, yeah. How did the progression to playing in public and so, proceed uh so that band i would say toward the end of my high school years i definitely remember being underage when we were playing our first shows <laughs> and we would play we would play at this local 
hub, what we call it in Australia, in Sydney. And it was kind of back then it was well-known biker bar, biker pub. Oh wow! And so we had we had this residency there where we played. I think you know every Friday night or Saturday night for a month or something. So how old were you at this um, time? I must have been seventeen. Oh my! I think seventeen years the old. Drinking, the, the drinking age is eighteen there, so oh, I, okay. I know I was underage. Uh, and I don't remember a lot about it. We played some originals and we played some covers. The one thing I do remember was that yeah, I was singing, I was playing bass, and that. There was one show that was a typical kind of scene from like a movie, like a, a biker bar movie where the brawl breaks out <laughs> oh, on the no. dance floor. <laughs> and there was a fight that was happening on the dance floor right in front of us. Wow. And a bunch of bikers were getting into it. And then I do remember it was this thing like the, the country and Western band keeps playing while the, while the fight keeps going. This yeah. biker just came up and took a, a swing at me as I was singing. And I just kind of ducked back while he, while his swing went past me and I just kept playing and singing and, and then somebody took him down. Oh my gosh. It was like the um, matrix. So that, that kind of, I got that out of the way nice and early. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when did it really hit you that you could do this for a living and do this professionally? It never did. Really? And I, and I think even I, I didn't finish high school I, I kind of popped out a year early i was i was sick for a year or two and then had to repeat a year because i'd taken so much time off oh wow. and then i and then once that happened i was only in there for a, a couple of months and then i pulled out because i just wasn't feeling it anymore but i remember at that time i then decided to go and do a year of audio engineering school because in the back of my mind i was thinking yeah, I'd love to be a musician, but I should probably have a backup plan. Now, that's a good idea. Any 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 audio engineer will probably tell you, well, that was a horrible backup plan. <laughs> um, and and I didn't really learn much from going to school. <laughs> I learned all of my, I guess, most of the stuff I learned about being an audio engineer was being hands on. You know, like I I had like a a, a four track tape machine and I was writing and recording my own songs. You know, I'd set up my brother's drum kit in the bathroom because I thought the acoustics would be better. Oh man. And, um, <laughs> and was, yeah, writing and recording songs back then. And then obviously I developed the ability to kind of bounce down and start to get my head around that a little bit. And then as that, the band that I was in called Scarlet in the late teens, early twenties, we had got a deal with EMI records in Australia back then and okay. got, got to record an album and bits and pieces. spending time in some proper studios and was always trying to pay attention to what was going on. So you're so, always learning, whether it's an instrument or in the studio, you're just always trying to take in as much information as you can. It sounds like. Yeah. I, 
I guess I just always felt like I was, and I still to this day feel like I'm never like the one thing is not my thing. Like I'm, you know, that saying, you know, Jack of all trades, a master of none. Yeah. Like, I know that, that one. That's definitely me. Like I, I feel like, and as well, the production thing was became really important to me. And, and I think I only realized later how important it was because I felt like I needed that to be able to create the sound that I wanted to, to have. Okay. I found it really hard to sit down and work with others and communicate exactly what I'm thinking. I like to sit back and kind of have the tools at my disposal and play with them until I get what I want. Okay. It's, it's, um, yeah. So yeah, it can, be, it can be hard to describe the sound in your head to somebody else. It is a little bit, the more time I've spent with other engineers and learning more and more of that stuff myself over the last couple of decades, it's become easier, but it's still much easier for me. The way, the process I use to record music and mix music, etc., is kind of like, it, it doesn't play well with the traditional, okay, we're going into a studio, you've got four weeks to record it and we're going to mix a song a day or we're going to mix a song every two days. And then you're done. Like, I just can't work like that. I, I like to have, you know, it's almost like, uh, let's say you had an art gallery or something in your, in your bedroom and you had the start of 12 paintings around the room and every day you'd walk in and spend maybe an hour or two in there and you'd look at each painting and maybe add a dash to something or a couple of dashes and then you walk away. Okay. Um, and, and in the, in the sense of an, an album, I would then probably also just put what I've done that day, maybe just onto my iPod or wherever iPhone. And, and then if I'm going for a walk in the evening, listen to that, then come up with more ideas Then the next day or the next couple of days, come back, add a little bit more, you know, and okay. it's like, if it, the color keeps getting added over a long period of time. And so I just can't, I find it really difficult to work in that traditional studio setup. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, that's really interesting. And were you doing that with Scarlet at all uh, at that point yet? Or were you just, still I, kind no, of... I was not, I was not doing any of the production stuff at that point. No, okay. I was definitely a novice at that point. Um, I was just singing and playing bass, but we started doing shows. We were signed to a major, which was a big deal back then. Yeah. Um, we started, we started playing lots of shows. So I started getting my, I guess my show sense on and, and you know, a few gigs under me to understand how, how that kind of works. I'm looking at the album right now for Scarlet and <laughs> I'm, it's, it's interesting because it's showing up as a two CD set. Your first it, album, it, a double album? <laughs> no, we released, I, I recall we released a, you would not be able to buy this stuff, but we released a single two EPs and then we released an album. But by the time the album came around, we had severed our ties with, with the label. Oh, wow. Which, which is a great story in itself as well. So, oh, so um, what happened? How did, I want to hear great stories. Uh, so, well, yeah, sure. It's, <laughs> so, you know, this is the early nineties and the A and R people at uh, major record labels back then, of course, always wanted to intervene as much as they could in the band's development. I've heard that. And so the, uh, the guy running the, 
the uh, A&R for EMI back then decided that he wanted to send me to LA to co-write with people. Okay. And, you know, thinking that this is, you know, this is kind of what you did back then. And anybody in bands on major labels back then would be like, it's, it's kind of one of those things that they always want you to co-write. Okay. Uh, so they sent me alone and not the rest of the band. And this is my first trip to America when I'm maybe 20. And they sent me off to, you know, West Hollywood, which is the worst place they could have sent me. And <laughs> I'm stuck there alone on, in a hotel room. And I was told that, you know, he would be there the next day and I'd be introduced to these people that I'd co-write with, which was an incredibly scary thought anyway, because the idea of writing with people was it's still to this day is it like scares the hell out of me. Well, and um, you're sitting in yeah. a in a foreign country in a hotel room waiting for strangers to knock on your door. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what happens. And so I, I'll shorten the story. And basically, nothing happened. And three and a half weeks later, I'm still sitting in the Mondrian, which is a very expensive hotel, with no co-writing happening, and still this guy not showing up giving me excuses every day and with full knowledge that this is going on the band's account. So, oh. you know, which is, you know, you, of course the record company is paying for it, but what you, what you don't know when you're younger is that it's all going on your account. You have to pay it back. It's all, right. it's all recoupable. No free rides. So I had obviously no one in my band was happy about this. And so, uh, there was a secret, plan made between myself and, and the manager at the time that they would fly me home uh, under the radar and oh. just come back. And of course, once the label found out about that, that was the, the end of our relationship. Oh man. Yeah. But you know what? I can't uh, blame you for there that. Was, sorry. There was another, there was another thing that happened. I think there was, there was a studio up in Byron Bay, which is about eight hours drive from Sydney. And we drove up there. It was like a live in studio. And oh yeah. Yeah. Is rumored to be owned and operated by an ex-mercenary. Um, but oh. it's a beautiful place out in the Byron, Byron Bay Hills, which is, I don't know if you've heard of that place, but no. it's a great place to go and live and record. So we had planned to spend a couple of weeks there doing pre-production and then going in the house and, and doing recording the album. Okay. And of course we had been there for a couple of weeks living, enjoying the, the live-in chef and everything that comes with it. And this, this guy who owns the studio kept telling us every day after a week or two saying he hasn't received payment from the label yet. And so again, long story short, three, three weeks in three and a half weeks, he commandeers all of our musical equipment and says, I'm keeping this and you guys are going home. And oh so we had to, had to basically drive home with none of our gear. And uh, that was the end of that album. And oh. that was the end of our relationship with the label. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. Now, at, at this time, were you writing a lot of the music for Scarlet, or was it a more of a band? Yeah, I was writing all of the lyrics and the vocals. Okay. Uh, and then the, the band together was writing. And, yeah, that, that's how that went. And then when that finished, that's when I really started. I was kind of over the business side of it's funny when I think about the story and tell people the story that, you know, it was by 21, I was already over the music business and I started writing songs about it and <laughs> decided, decided that I wasn't going to do it anymore in that sense. And that's when I decided to just set up in a 
in a bedroom with the guitarist from the guy from this, this band Scarlet and I had written some songs and we were going to do something acoustic and I was going to take full control of the production. Oh, okay. So this is for the first time in my life. So I, I just had a four track machine and some really basic kind of outboard gear and, uh, you know, just a basic microphone and started coming up with, I think the themes of that EP that we kind of came up with, although it never got released. Okay. And, and a song are the themes and, and a lot of it was mine. Um, this, the theme from that is basically what you have heard on the solo record that I'm just about to release. Oh, wow. Okay. But it just sat, it just sat dormant for all of that time. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's full circle. Yeah. So, <laughs> how did you move from Scarlet to the Morning After Girls? So there's you know a bunch of bands in between there. One, yeah, because there's about ten one. years, right? Yeah, another one on my own. There was some time in the wilderness, not doing music, doing just you know another job completely, which is fine as well. Taking a complete detour. Oh yeah. Because um, I didn't want to. I didn't want music to be my job if I didn't like it. I'd rather do something else to make money. I still feel the same way. I'd rather do something else to make money and make music that I like rather than being forced to make music that I don't like to make money. So, so I took a detour there, had a corporate job for a while, and then uh, I was in a band for a bit and released an album with those guys, kind of like an electro rock kind of thing. It was very... Depeche Mode oh, influenced, wow. I would say, and and that band, I was just the singers. So that that was another thing that kind of I had to face my fears of standing up the front with no instrument to hide behind. Oh, I don't man. think I'd ever do that again in my life. But um, <laughs> I also spent a lot of time working with a guy in that band, learning more about production. That's when I started seeing computer based recording a lot more and so this is the early 2000s and had started just getting a very basic recording set up at home and then had met amy i was just tailing up in this electro rock band but feeling like i wasn't into it anymore um and she had joined this other band that she was putting together with some friends so i left the band and that band split up and then i went back to playing bass and that's the first time i was in a band with amy and I think that band, I can't remember what it was called, but that's the first time we played together and we also sang together. I sang backups and stuff and she was the main singer. Okay. And then around that time, the morning after girls who were a band from Melbourne were visiting Sydney playing and we just got talking to them after seeing a show um, and got friendly with them. And um, I think they stayed at our house a couple of times because they were, they were that kind of band. Oh, yeah, <laughs> couch um, surfing. They were just, they were couch surf. Um, and we became friends. And at some point, a couple of months down the road, we just got this strange phone call from, from them saying that they're going to, they're moving to Sydney. All three of them are moving to Sydney. I think, so no, two, two, yeah, three, but they were losing two members and, uh, asked if Amy and I wanted to join the band. That's what happened. They re they relocated. Wow. And then they and then we joined the band. And then things started really kind of kicking off for that band. With that, were you doing any of the songwriting for that band as well, or were you just 
more of a hired gun I, kind of a thing? Or? I wasn't. We weren't hired guns. We were definitely part of the band. Okay. But by the time they'd moved to Sydney, they had already written the two EPs, which were the basis of what we were doing live, and also the album that got released later. There was a little bit of new music that happened that we were involved with. no recording that happened that in that period ah, for okay. while we were to but we did a ton of touring so that was my first experience really touring america and and you and, and uk uh and we even did japan as well so is that where you met up with with a bunch of the bands that you've worked with in the in well, I guess in the future at this point, like the Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. and That's exactly where, where all of those connections happened. When Amy and I were in the Morning After Girls, we uh, actually did an American tour with BRMC while they were doing the Howl tour, oh. um, which is still one of my favorite BRMC albums. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. So this was um, our first serious American tour. We were touring with Black Rebel, um, and it was an amazing experience for a band that hadn't been really on tour. Like I hadn't been on tour to that extent ever in my life. It was a dream, and and also to be on tour with a band that I loved so much was a real dream. The great thing about that, and and I can't, you know, I can only speak for the the people that I know in that band, and I, Leah wasn't actually in the band at that point but she wasn't in the band at that point no but peter is one of the sweetest guys on the planet once leah joined the band definitely uh there was uh, she's obviously the outgoing one in the band um back then rob's dad was doing the sound as well yeah um so it was it was a very happy family on tour back then and we had a great time yeah when did you and amy decide to form the black rider so Amy and I spent, uh, I, I would say, three about three years in in the morning after girls. Okay. We did a lot of touring. That's a long festivals. Yeah, I was gonna say that's yeah, a long time to to be touring but not recording anything. It was, but it was a crucial time for us because that's that is where we met a lot of the bands that we ended up keeping relationships with, and you know, so we we toured with a lot of bands that's where we first met brmc so we toured with we did shows with bjm as well so yeah i think we'd been on tour for a bit there were some personality clashes in that band and we got home from a pretty successful tour came back and did a great sold out melbourne show came back to sydney and then just out of the blue randomly got this email from the band saying that we were fired wow which was a huge surprise, but in some ways it was a complete blessing. Yeah. And I don't remember us being overly upset by it. <laughs> I think we were, su- we were surprised, but not 
not too upset in terms of there was no thought of, well, what the fuck are we going to do now? It was more about, I think we got fired from the morning after girls, you know, like on a Monday and we, we started the black rider on a Tuesday. Oh, wow. You know, it was, it was that quick. I had already had like a, a really basic song or two. I think I had let, some let it go. The basis of that on a four track sitting upstairs in the studio and I just remember thinking right let's go and do this So that's that's when the Black Rider started, and it was always going to just to be Amy and I, especially after coming out of that group dynamic that wasn't really healthy. And so, yeah, that, that's that's how that started. So, Let It Go was one of the first things that you you did as the Black Rider, then, because that's yeah, one Let of my Go favorite had... tracks off that album. Oh, thanks, thank you. Yeah, Let It Go had been written before the Black Rider was even officially formed. I would say. Wow. Yeah. I remember having it sitting around on a four track. So I think your first tour as Black Rider was opening for BRMC, right? It was. Yeah. And, and, and I think that opportunity came to us before we even had a band, I think. Oh, wow. So BRMC were touring Australia and I, and I think Amy caught wind of it and was like, we need to do this. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, we better, we better put a band together. (laughs) Um, and so right around that time, funny enough, Ricky Mamie, the guitarist from the Brian Jonestown massacre was staying with us in Sydney and he was, he was living at the house. I think, man, maybe for a couple of months at some point, Oh wow! which is why he features so heavily on that first album because around that time, which is when I, we were we were in full kind of recording mixing mode for the black rider. And this is the first album that I'm really kind of fully honed on my, like, you know, the recording is all up to me kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I'd start buying equipment and Amy and I were buying guitar panels left, right and center. So we had to learn to, okay, well, we always had this thought in the back of our mind. It was like, if it's going to be us two and we wanted to be able to tour internationally, and we want to be able to pick up a bass player and a drummer, et cetera, in different countries because the touring was so expensive living in Australia. Just to get to the UK or get to America, you were already $15,000 in the hole. Oh, so God. We always thought the band should be us two and we should be able to be able to grab friends in other bands to, hey, you know, let's, back then we knew the guys in all sorts of bands. It was like, hey, do you want to come play a drum for the tour? So that was the plan. So that's, that's, there was a, a huge accelerated learning period then. And so Ricky was staying with us. And so he was playing guitar on almost everything. Cause he was just there all the time. <laughs> um, and that's when also he, uh, one of his friends, Graham Bonner, who was a drummer from Swerve Driver was yeah. in town. And Ricky was like, we should get Graham to play on a song. And I'm like, sure. Yeah, why not? Um, why not? And I had become really friendly with 
the guys from the church who like still to this day are one of my favorite bands, hugely influential band to me when I was growing up. And I, I think around that time I may have been playing in one of Steve Kilby's solo bands. So I got to know Tim a little bit from the church, the drummer. So he also played drums on a track. So there were lots of guests. Oh, of course, and Pete, Pete from Black Rebel. Yeah. Uh, now we he wasn't in Australia, but we sent him. They were actually recording Hell, and so we would we we would send him music overnight, and then he would just stay up and and you know ask him if he put guitar track or something on it. Wow. And of course he would, he would send like eight guitar tracks back, you know, and he goes, I don't know what I'm doing. Just pick and choose what you want. Um, and so we got him to play harmonica on the track on sweet come down. We got him to play guitar all over. It's like a burn fade and. enough also played drums on burn and fade but she wasn't in black rebel yet that was uh, amy knew amy was in america at some point when leah used to play in dead combo oh wow and she joined them on tour for a little bit because her and leah were friends and she's a huge dead combo fan and that's oh, yeah. so so we knew leah separately from black rebel at that point that's yeah. amazing yeah, yeah. Oh, it's funny how that stuff works out. <laughs> Jeez. It's it's crazy how incestuous that scene was at some point. Yeah. You don't think so, but oh my gosh. The, the stories I'm hearing, I'm just like, this is, the connections are unbelievable. Right. I, I mean, I for that to be our debut album and also like nobody really knew who we were. Of course, we had been scoring the most amazing support spots in Australia because of our connections that we've made through the morning after bells. Like yeah. every band that came to Australia that we knew, we were like, Hey, let's go tour with you. Um, and they were like, sure. I'm sure we're pissing off every, every other band in Sydney at that point. Um, but yeah, we just got really, really lucky, you know, touring the Jonestown, Rebel, the Ravenette, the Dandies. Yeah. There are a bunch of others that I can't even remember now. Yeah. When you were working on the, the music for a Buy the Ticket, Take the Ride, did you have any concerns about recreating the sounds live or was was it a concern at all? Or It, it wasn't a thought at all in terms of how are we going to do this because clearly on that record there it's a very processed record. So, you know, there are lots of, there's multiple guitar tracks right. on that record. There's multiple vocals. There's lots of engineering trickery, I would say, <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's not a basic sparse 
band record. It's it's, right. it's fully fully immersed in in drone and and yeah. um, all sorts of sounds. Like it is layer upon layer dense, upon yeah. layer upon layer. Yeah, but that's um, one of the things I love about it is the density of that album. Yeah, it, it's it's when I look back at it now and listen to it, it's it was a combination of where our head was at at the time in yeah. terms of the music that we we're listening to, and you know the vocals are very buried. Um, you know, once in a while I see people complaining on online. It's like, I don't know who mixed this record. It was horrible. Like, <laughs> you know, because when they've seen, and this is a fan of the black rider saying, you know, I saw the band live. It's so much better. And I totally get that because I listen to that now and think when we went on to play those songs live. And of course my taste changed as well. Like it's, it's much more raw. The vocals are higher and yeah, it's just a different animal, but it's, it was what it was at the time, and you know, I wouldn't change it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's exactly it's a snapshot of where you guys were. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When you went in to do uh, the door behind the door, did you go in thinking you had to make something different because that album is a lot different than Huge the first? Shit. It's it's a lot more ethereal. Songs like Seventh Moon is just lush mm. and gorgeous. strings you got big choruses bells yeah i i mean i love that stuff and i've always been kind of a production nerd to some degree <laughs> and and i love the big production whether it be you know like I, I was always a huge brian wilson phil Spector fan right from when i was very very young yeah and so there, there was a lot that happened physically and personally between the first record and the second record we had relocated to the states by then a, a lot of distance like physically from where we came from and also emotionally from where we came from and also both of us always want to not repeat ourselves like we didn't really want to make the same record again and also we have always both really been interested in like the ethereal side of of that music as well so there was maybe the landscape change had something to do with that and we spent a little bit of time i know we used to we rented a house a couple of times out at joshua tree and Ooh. i would bring out my my studio stuff out there and we did that for a couple of reasons one to soak up the the atmosphere of being there and also secondly just so amy and i could be in the same house for like a week or two to be able to really engage mentally on the project versus, you know, just going over to, you know, going over her place or she came into my place for a couple of hours. It's, right. it just kind of puts you in a different headspace. Okay. You know? The thing that, I, that it kind of strikes me with this, this album is that you take songs like uh, all that we are, which is, is one of the most, beautiful songs i absolutely love mm. that song i mean it's, it's one of those once when i hear it i kind of have to go back and listen to it a few right. times in a row because it's it's i just i love that that track yeah. 
but I was looking at the tracks today and actually listening to everything, both albums again today. And songs like Seventh Moon, um, Let Me Be Your Light, Santeria. To me, this is, if My Bloody Valentine had made this album, I would have liked it more than the album, they, than the MBV album they came out with around the same time. It's Wow, that's a huge compliment. Thank you. Well, the MBV album to me sounded actually too much like Loveless. Right. And then this sounds like the My Bloody Valentine sound, but progressing it, moving it forward. And I mean, I don't see them doing a song like Throwing Stones, but... Right. You know, but... I, I, again, the one thing that... The, the one thing the two albums do have in common is that there's such variety on, on both of those albums. Yes. Like, for instance, like if you look at the first record, Buy the Ticket, Take the Ride, we've got really kind of shoegazy swamp guitars, buried vocals. Yeah. And then you've got this weird country song at the end. same thing where we've got these huge ethereal kind of tracks and then we've got throwing stones which is clearly kind of like a stones homage scream in there and then of course it finishes off with an 11 minute string piece right and it's like there's one thing that we do both really agree on and that's like there doesn't need to be some kind of weird formula that the album needs to be it's like whatever we want to put on there if it if it flows together and it's still very different in, in a way that's a, a bonus for us were the songs written and worked out before you guys started to record them or was anything just born in the studio it's so hard because when you say in the studio, in the studio is kind of wherever I, wherever I am, <laughs> happen to be point. playing. That's a good point. So, like the eleven-minute string piece it, that finishes up door behind the door, <laughs> I actually um, I was at Amy's place, and I actually I think Leah was there, and Leah and Amy were talking in the lounge room. And I'm just off. I'm just off on the other side, which is one big room, which is where her studio was. And I was on the on the keyboard. Just brought up a really beautiful synth sound, and luckily I had had I'd hit record, and then had just that was just completely improvised. Wow! Like I just I was just playing, and I really like the sound, and I was I guess feeling a certain emotion that day. 
I just kept playing strings and moving from chord to chord and piece to piece. And then 11 and a half minutes goes by and I stop and I look at Amy and, and Leah and I'm like, holy fuck. <laughs> <laughs> um, and were you listening to that? And that's essentially, that's the, that's the track. And wow. then all I, all I did to that was then ask a friend of mine who plays cello and, and had some of his friends who played uh, violin viola i said do you think you would be able to replicate this and he initially said yes but then i think he wished he hadn't said <laughs> yes because it was there was in no sense timing you know it was all completely improvised without yeah. or anything so he actually did a pretty great job and in the end i ended up combining my original synth string piece with the real strings wow. to give it closer to what I was looking for. that's a long way to answer your question of how things are recorded. I always, I never think oh, I'm just going to do this as a demo and then we'll record it properly later because I think that's the, that is the killer of all, of all vibration. Oh, wow. And okay. I always think that when you're going to record something, you should try and make sure you get a decent sound ish, you know, like, so you don't have to re-record it because so many times I've gone to re-record things and spent time on it and think it's just never as good as the original. Even if you get a better mic, even if you get a better sound, there's something about it that just never quite clicks. So I always try to make sure that, well, a lot of the stuff that ends up on the records is the stuff that we originally, I was just toying around with. That's awesome. I had a very similar conversation a couple of days ago with Chris Ollie. He was saying, All right saying that you know he records he likes the first take because that's when it's the purest because after that you're just trying to recreate what you did in the first take right i i don't know if i would always say look it has to be the first take but it has to the first session in terms of okay so it, you, it might be you know two or three takes but the idea of then having that and listening to that for a couple of months and coming back and thinking, I need to redo this to make it better. That's that's a real killer for me. I hate doing that. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> it obviously has been done. Yeah, but I'd, I'd prefer not to do it. Yeah. So, when did you start playing with the Jesus and Mary chain? Because uh, you toured with them in, in the past, right? Yeah. So, okay. how that came about was Amy and I were touring. This is after the door behind the door came out. And around this is around 2015, we'd done a bit of t touring in America. Like we've done a couple of big tours with the cult when we first moved here, but we hadn't done a lot of touring for that record. It was a little bit of a difficult record to tour as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, Strings and horses. And... I think we were also a little bit over it. And, um, but we had had this amazing opportunity to, to open for the Jesus and Mary chain on, a West coast tour, I think it was. And so, you know, we were extremely excited by that because both Amy and I met in 
golf clubs in Sydney in the, you know, early nineties. And, <laughs> you know, we were both huge Mary Chain fans. And so that, that was a pretty big deal. Oh and yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> so we, we did that tour with them and, um, they used to ask Amy to get up and, and sing, uh, just like honey quite often every night. Oh wow. Which was amazing for her as well. Yeah. And so that tour finished and everybody said their goodbyes and, you know, we, we got on really well as much as you can interact with those guys because they are extremely shy. I've heard that. <laughs> so that went really well. And I guess it went so well that they, um, they asked us to come and do some, uh, the East coast run as well later. Wow. And so I think somewhere on the East coast tour, there was, I think Amy had started hearing, heard some rumors again through one of the guy's girlfriends that Phil King, who was the longtime guitarist, I think he was in, in the band for at least 10 years. Oh, wow. And Phil is, Phil is also, if you Google Phil King, it'll blow your mind how many bands that guy has played in. He was original member of Lush as yeah. well. I think that's how I, I remember his original, right? Yeah. And he was so many other bands, but he'd been in the Mary chain for a long time. Oh, okay. And so started hearing rumors that he was going to leave because Lush were going to reform. Right. And he, he needed to go back and do that. And so this opportunity came up where it looked like they were going to be looking for a guitarist and Amy had told me about it. And when the two are finished, uh, I sent Jim and William an email and just said, I heard you might be looking for somebody. I, you know, I'd be happy to, jump in for you if you if you need anyone right and you know i kept it pretty short and sweet and in true reed brothers style i don't think i heard anything back for a couple of months <laughs> and figured and figured that 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 was dead in the water and then i just got this random short email from i think it was william or jim i can't even remember asking me would it would it be too much of a conflict with the black rider and i said Black Ride is more of a studio band these days, which we were. Yeah. And he said, okay. And then I think the next I heard was next thing I heard was from their manager saying, uh, okay, so we'll, uh, we'll see you in Japan in a couple of, couple of months. Oh my God. So that's how that came about. It was, there really wasn't a whole lot of conversation about it. Oh my gosh. How do you prepare for something like that? Cause they've got such a, such a sound. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that was one thing that really crossed my mind was that I didn't, obviously we'd spent a lot of time on tour with them. Yeah. I didn't want to go in and just think I'm going to do what Phil did. What I wanted to do was go back, really listen to the catalog and understand what the guitar sounds were and really wanted to do my best to replicate what was going on on those records. And that did mean changing up some of the stuff that Phil was doing and which is great because, you know, it's important that we both have our own style. Yeah. I wanted, I wanted to bring my own style to the band, but yeah, it it was a little, it was a little daunting, but um, <laughs> I convinced the the Mary Chain manager to ship out 
the the guitar pedal board that you know was in storage in in the uk <laughs> so i could have a look at it and see what was on there and of course the mary chain sound is very reliant on these iconic pedals called the shinai pedals from the, these rare kind of japanese fazwa pedals okay but as soon as you turn it on it sounds like a jesus and mary chain yeah. to some degree so <laughs> you know I, I really needed those out here and i and to have a play with them and also to work out what I was going to swap in and out and all that kind of stuff. The most that happened was, I think we had a couple of garage rehearsals, just Brian Young, the, the drummer, mm -hmm. and William was also living in LA at the time. And we came out, I think we maybe had two or three rehearsals of a couple of songs, but it was really just the three of us. It wasn't a full band. And the first time I ever played with the band was at sound check in japan i think or in new zealand so. oh my god are there rules do they set down ground rules for for playing their stuff live or do they let you pretty much have some freedom to to do your thing well here's here's a story that will explain that okay so after it was we had a rather long sound check obviously because you know this is the first time everybody had been playing together and they hadn't played together for a while as well and I'd really done my homework and done a lot of preparation and then walked off stage and I realized that neither William or Jim said a word to me <laughs> through the whole rehearsal, I think. And I was like, okay, that's weird. Are they not happy with what I'm doing? You know, so my head is kind of spinning with these thoughts of like, what's going on? Yeah. And so I, I think I said to, I think I said to Brian, the drama, I was like, um, hey, neither of them said anything. And he goes, don't worry, if you did anything wrong, they would. <laughs> and, and that's kind of basically how, how they have been with me the whole time I've been in there. It's like very, very rarely, sometimes William will ask me to do something specifically or ask, he might say, look, I want to do this part. Can you do this part? But it's very much a complete open forum for you to do whatever you want. Wow. Because, uh, you know, if, if you go by that, uh, by what Brian said, if, if they don't like something, they'll tell you. And very rarely have it, have either of them turned around and said, I don't really like what you're doing. So, wow. um, like, yeah, in that band, no news is good news, basically. You know, that's gotta be amazing growing up, listening to the band and then being able to, you know, do your own, express your, yourself in the context of their classic songs. It's a little mind-bending at times. Yes. <laughs> um, even when you can get into that, you know, I've been in the band well, for five, six years now, and wow. we've done, I've probably done two, 300 shows with them, I'm sure. Wow. You can easily get into that tour lag of, of every night, but even if you kind of fall into that, there's always moments on stage in amongst the smoke and the shadows and the light where I'll just peek over, you know, and I, I still 
work with monitors. I'm not on in-ears, in-ears or anything. Okay. And I've got, I, I have a lot of Jim's, uh, sorry, a lot of Williams guitar just blasting through my monitors. Oh, wow. And there's moments where I'm just on stage and I just have his guitar blasting at me and there is a sense and looking over and you can see that huge iconic head of hair yeah. and it's like, <laughs> and I'm like, shit, William Reed. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Best seat in the you, house. You just, yeah, you have those moments once in a while. I was like, man, you just kind of have to check yourself the privilege. And, and it's a, it's a, it's an amazing, amazing thing to have to, you know, to come my way. So you've got a new album coming out. You mentioned yeah. that a couple of the songs you wrote years and years ago. Have you been writing the music slowly for this the entire time? Or is it something, I guess, what was the impetus to, to get this solo album finished at this point in time? Well, there's always been songs that I have written that um, I knew weren't really kind of Black Rider tracks. There was also a part of me that really wanted to do a solo record as well. And I think I, I had been playing seriously, thinking about the idea for maybe a couple of years, but it was really kind of like an on off thing where I realized I was starting to develop a little bit of a catalog of songs at home that I'd started recording that I knew weren't going to go anywhere. I, you know, weren't going to go anywhere else. And it was, it was one of those things that, you know, like almost every guy in a band says, yeah, I'm going to release a solo record one day. And, yeah. and I, and I kind of had that feeling creeping up on me. It's like, Oh, I'm becoming that guy, you know? <laughs> and, and I've been telling people I've been working on a solo record for a year or two now and I'm becoming that person. And then, <laughs> and so the shame of that started to creep in. And yeah. I was like, when I had made a real attempt to finish it, I think in 2018 or 19, Okay. got in a studio with a guy to come in, play drums and re-recorded some stuff at his studio that I couldn't do at my place. And then got him to mix a couple of tracks, which in the end I spent the next 12 months undoing all of his mixing <laughs> and then coming cause you know, I can't help myself. Yeah. And when the pandemic hit, and I, I lost my whole year of touring the Mary chain. Yeah. I knew right then and I was like, right, that's it. I'm, I'm going to finish this record this year. And I'd set a date and right about then Laura had asked me to mix her live record too. Oh, wow. Okay. And I said, okay, well let's work this out because I'm going to set a date for myself to finish my record. And then, cause I had to promise her a date because she, she needed something solid. Right. So that was a good motivator for me to be like, okay, I need to be done with my record by end of May because I'm starting work on Laura's on the 1st of June or something like that. Okay. And to generally, I kept, I kept to my promise of being finished, although I must admit after I finished Laura's record, I went back and tweaked a few things. <laughs> um, but it, it's essentially been finished for almost a year now. Wow. Um, and it, it's just kind of been in that, process of you know like mastering and then and then working out okay so how am i going to put this out and and then just waiting i've been in the waiting pattern for a long time oh man so, so i got a chance you sent me a, a few of the tracks and yeah. it, they're incredible i thank the, you the three that i, I heard i absolutely loved 
Devil's Son. It's just got this big John Lennon quality yes. to it, which I, I absolutely love it. telling you earlier about the the four track i was doing back in the early 90s i think yeah or, or late 90s yeah. mid 90s the sound that i was going for on that four track was exactly that production style if i go back and listen to those tapes i'm like this it's almost identical what i did on, on these tracks cool. but that's how long i've wanted to do tracks like that for i'm a huge lennon fan and a huge fan of that production style of the, the slap back on the drums yes. and the vocals and and as well, like I really wanted to make a record which was way more sparse than the Black Rider stuff. You'll notice there's a lot less going on. Yeah. And it's gone back to more traditional kind of stuff. There's there's a lot more piano on it. So yeah. I've gone back to the instrument that I'm best at. Yeah. <laughs> um, and a lot of piano and organ and um you know it's really basic with that and my vocals are really loud and right up front not yep. like they are in the black rider and you know more traditional kind of auxiliary instruments like yeah there's some strings in there and there's some brass but there's also like this the gospel singers and stuff like that and that you can tell a friend of mine said yesterday that you could tell the seed that went from the door behind the door into to the solo record because I, I still have that that certain love of this this production ideas yeah so, you can yeah. i definitely see the, the connection between the two and then the progression to something less dense but definitely as grand right and uh, like oh that's a great way to describe it so, thank you oh yeah. my pleasure oh, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to call you in my, <laughs> in my press oh less, hey less, there you go <laughs> yeah i think that about myself personally too <laughs> less, less dense and more grand i think i'm getting more dense right but, but, <laughs> I, but for example over and over it's got a big grand sound to it that the drum sound is just fantastic yeah. i love that it's drum sound. Great, isn't it yeah it's like lennon's rock and roll album you know that's that's what it, what it immediately brought me back to because my mom would play that all the time and it had that right. drum sound I'm like so it brought me back to listening to lennon's album sitting in my living room with my parents so that's great to hear are you playing on all the tracks i mean is it all you instrumentally yeah, I'm doing everything on this record other than um, I got my friend Norm Block 
to play drums on this. He has a great studio nearby. He also, I know you've talked to Alan uh, Johannes as well. I'm yes. pretty sure he's like, if you dug into Norm's history, you'll see all that interaction there. Okay. Um, so he's a great guy, super talented engineer. Um, so he played drums on it wow. and I think I played everything else. Um, I got Charlotte Gibson to come in and sing backing vocals. Okay. And she's the singer that you can probably hear on, I'm not sure what tracks I sent you, but she has tour with Nine Inch Nails as well. Oh, wow. Um, and she can, she can really belt it out. <laughs> so yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember, is it, it's, it's either over and over or, uh, Lucifer, it might, it might be both of them. Lu- Luce, yeah. Lucifer has, has the backing vocals coming in at the end. Okay. In the, That's what in I'm the, thinking of. Is there a theme throughout the album that ties everything together? Because I'm, I'm just looking at the titles. I got the Devil's Son and Lucifer. So, <laughs> yeah, it, I, I noticed this as well. A lot of these songs are written many years apart, and it, it was funny. I was, I had to, re, I had to review the lyrics for something recently, or had to write one of those something for the release where I'm talking about what the record's about and right. to really think about it because yeah. I hadn't thought about it before. And it was really interesting to me when I was listening to the lyrics, how many of them have this kind of sense of a person at their end, at the end of their life, going back and reviewing, um, reviewing things. And yes, there's a couple of kind of devil Lucifer yeah. references as well. There's some spiritual stuff in there. But I don't know. There's some there's some other themes in there running through, kind of letting go of attachments, you know. But it wasn't you didn't choose the songs based on any overarching theme or anything. The musical theme, I think, I don't think I was really sure if there was going to be a solid theme until the Devil's Son was written. Over and over had been around for a long time. For a couple of years and i always thought i would love to write an album like this or at least to have it based around that kind of you know like what you were talking about that leninish kind of production and sound yeah. and that kind of song and and i had this there's another track kind of in that vintage as well which i knew i had although it was just causing me a complete nightmare to try and you know i think i mixed the thing 400 times to try and get it sound wow. sound right I had recorded the, the chords for Devil's Son, but it was about twice as fast, completely different vibe. And I had this, I was struggling with it a little bit. And I had this dream one night and I woke up out of the dream in the morning and the dream was the Devil's Son. And it was the song that I, that I had knew and already recorded, but it was done in the style of the Devil's Son like how it is on the record. And I immediately woke up knowing, oh my God, this is how I need to do it. Wow. All of the production was in my head and I just went straight to the studio and I was like, I need to slow this fucking thing down. 
and make it way more soulful. And like, so once I, once that happened that morning from that dream and, and I changed that and I had three songs of that similar kind of production feeling, I was like, right, here's the record. Wow. You know, and, and that it was, that was the day that I realized, okay, now I know where I'm, what I'm heading for, like what the main theme of the record is going to be. Of course, oh, there's some other stuff that pops in a little later because, you know, I love to do that. Right. I, I'm a huge, like Crosby Stills Nash fan as well. So there's a track at the end that's very acoustic and, oh, awesome. and, and harmonious in that way. But yeah, but, but that was the feeling I wanted to go for that seventies kind of more kind of singer songwriter seventies thing. I'm sure it's, Part of the fun of that is knowing that nobody will expect that from me. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Now, with venues opening up in the U.S. at this point, are, are you planning on touring this at all? Or are you going to be touring with the Jesus and Mary chain instead? Or Well, the, the first touring I have for the year will be the Mary chain. And that's so we have a, Europe, a European tour in November, December, where we're we're, doing, we're playing Darklands live. Oh, cool. Um, and that tour has been rescheduled, I think, three times now. <laughs> but I think this one's going to, I think this one will stick. Okay. So, so that's going to be the end of my year. Okay. I ran into the drummer from my solo record the other day on a walk, and he was like, Are you putting a band together? And I'm like, I guess I'm thinking about it. And he goes, you should, um, <laughs> I feel like it's other people telling me that I should do this. And there is a big part of me that would love to do it. Yeah. So yes, I'm, I'm heavily thinking about it. Okay. Uh, no, I'm no, I'm not going to make any, no commitment. No, no, no commitments. Yeah. Okay. Understandable. Especially the way things are going. You never, you just never know. Yeah. I, I would love to do it live though. I think it'd be really fun to play those tracks live. The three tracks that I've heard are just making me really want to hear the album in its entirety. Thank you. And oh, thanks. they're beautiful tracks. Where can people find the album? How are they going to be able to purchase it? So the, um, I'm getting some beautiful vinyl made. And so that will be, that will be available, I guess, by the time the podcast is released and then available on, on all the standard uh, digital platforms. And it's going to be released through my own label, which I'm cool. also super excited about that I get to own the masters and the publishing and the whole thing for the first time in my life, which is, which wow. is uh, kind of exciting. That's yeah, which is great. That is great. Oh, I love, I love hearing that. That's so awesome. Yeah, I got locked into one of those you know, horror, like nightmare stories that musicians tell you about the, where they signed a contract in their early twenties, and yeah. you know, and that they were dealing with it for a couple of decades. Yeah, that was me. So, um, oh. I just got out of um, a publishing contract that I'd been in for a very long time. So oh, for the first time in my life, yeah, it's um, I'll be I fully own these songs, which is so nice. To oh. feel. If there's if your contract contains the words in perpetuity, yeah, think think again. Yeah. Yeah. Kids, there's yeah. one there's one for the young folks listening out there. Exactly. <laughs> well, where can people follow you and and get information about the release dates and and tours for you and possible tours for you? No commitment and Jesus and Mary Chain tour info. Well, obviously the Mary Chain are. Um, I, I have no control of over their socials, which means they're probably being done very well. Yeah. And so you can follow the Mary Chain on probably everything. 
and uh, all of the tour information about uh, the Mary Chain tours will be there. I, I am really, I quite have an aversion to social media and it's, you know, it's Don't problematic for an artist in this <laughs> day and age not to enjoy it. And so, you know, I don't know if you, if you were looking for any research before this uh, <laughs> podcast, but you, you wouldn't have found much on my social media. I'm very quiet, pretty private, quite introverted. Yeah. And so my social media is kind of like a reflection of who I am in real life. And once I realized that, I felt a bit better about it. There'll be a single out, The Devil's Son will be coming out first. And that's probably may have already come out by the time this podcast has been released. But I'll, yeah, I'll be letting everybody know when that stuff is coming out. Mm -hmm where to get it and all that kind of stuff. Well, I understand that you are a very private person, which makes me all the more grateful that you decided to join me this evening. Thank you so much for spending so much time with me and, and working through my technical problems. Thanks, Mark. Well, as I said to you earlier, I don't know if it was uh, we're recording, but so many of my um, friends and acquaintances have been on this. So um, yeah, it was a pleasure to do it. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. You used to associate crickets with silence. But since you bought a house in the suburbs, you know crickets hate silence. If any other creature realized rubbing its legs together made a piercing high-pitched noise, they might think, maybe I won't do that. Constantly. All night long. Luckily, you can save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto. Now that's something to make noise about. Just not constantly. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches, as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com slash workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 